Uh, good afternoon. I'm Fred Kemp. I'm President and CEO of the Atlantic Council. Uh, I had the pleasure uh, last month of joining several of our board directors on a delegation to the Gulf, uh, led by our board chairman, uh, Governor Huntsman, and the chairman of the Brent Scowcroft Center on International Security, uh, General uh, Jim Jones. <coughs> we met with a number of senior leaders uh, to discuss challenges and opportunities confronting the future of the U.S. Gulf strategic relationship. And I think what really struck us is in an off-the-record setting, uh, one got even more of a feeling uh, of the urgency that our partners feel for an even stronger uh, American engagement with regional partners in this historic uh, situation um, in, in, in the Middle East that is now stretching uh, its tentacles into Europe uh, with the attacks in Paris, with the migrant crisis, and into the United States as well. We've seen some progress down the path of closer U.S. Gulf cooperation. The meeting between President Obama and GCC leaders back in May sought to reaffirm U.S. commitment to collective security of the Gulf uh, as the Iran nuclear agreement neared completion. Uh, I don't need to tell you how much has happened in the world since May, and I think we'll address some of that as well because that also affects what's going forward here. Today we're aiming to assess how both the U.S. government and the GCC states are progressing on those Camp David commitments and how we can improve the way forward. Um, U.S. Uh, Gulf security cooperation coordination on regional conflicts are a higher priority than perhaps ever before. Uh, however, since that, at Camp David, I think it's fair to say that the U.S. and GCC states uh, with all the effort to go forward, have also met with some familiar obstacles uh, to broad-based security cooperation, ranging from uh, slow decision-making on the U.S. side uh, to uh, other priorities getting in the way, more urgent issues, and sometimes conflicting priorities uh, among the GCC states. Uh, joining our discussion today is uh, General Jones, former National Security Advisor uh, to President Obama, former Supreme Allied Commander Europe, uh, and as I mentioned before, chairman of the Brent Scowcroft Center on International Security, also former chairman of our board. Uh, Dr. Nawaf Obaid uh, joins us from the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs at Harvard's, uh, uh, Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government, uh, where he is a visiting fellow working on Saudi affairs, Gulf security, and uh, energy issues. We also welcome our own Barry Pavel, vice president of the Atlantic Council, and Arnold Cantor, chair and director of the Brent Scowcroft Center on International Security, uh, formerly also served in the White House and, and many years in the Pentagon. Uh, today's discussion will be moderated by Karen DeYoung, uh, associate editor and senior national security correspondent for the Washington Post to ensure that our panelists don't get away with anything. Uh, uh, the, um, they will address, uh, our speakers today will address the successes and challenges in furthering U.S. Gulf partnerships since the Camp, Camp David Summit including obstacles continuing to hinder cooperation on both sides, as well as opportunities to expand security relationships. The event is on the record, and we encourage everyone to follow the conversation on Twitter, uh, at Atlantic Council, so at Atlantic Council with the hashtag AC Mideast. So Karen, over to you.
Good afternoon. Um, rather than opening remarks, I think we're going to go right into a discussion. And I'd like to start with um, the, the Camp David meeting uh, last year, where there were a number of, uh, last year, early this year, where there were a number of deliverables. Um, they agreed what amounted to a mutual defense pledge. Um, to deter and confront any external threat to the GCC state's territorial integrity using all the means of our collective and GCC partners. Uh, they promised to fast track arm transfers, uh, increase cooperation on cyber, and in a lot of other areas on counterterrorism, and to move ahead more quickly on um, ballistic missile defense in the Gulf. All of this, as you recall, was directed toward a post-sanctions uh, Iran uh, and was designed to reassure the Gulf states that the United States had their back and was not giving away the store. Um, they also talked about joint efforts to support the government of Iraq, um, to enhance uh, cooperation on shared terrorism threats, and they particularly mentioned the Islamic State and Al-Qaeda. And yet, on a number of, of these deliverables, they seem to be as far apart as ever, if not farther in some ways. Um, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates have directed their resources from the anti-ISIL coalition to Yemen, uh, a fight that no one seems to have thought would go on as long as it has. Um, and there doesn't seem to be a real political solution uh, in the offing anytime soon. And meanwhile, AQAP is advancing um, in Yemen. Uh, so I'd like to turn to General Jones to just give us an overview of where we stand now on the state of cooperation between the United States and the Gulf states, both looking at, at the deliverables from the, from the meeting uh, earlier this year and also how that carries through in other areas, counterterrorism, uh, cyber, and, and things like that. Oh, thank you, Karen. And uh, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here with the, the members of the panel. And um, I'm, I'm very happy to be uh, part of the, uh, the Atlantic Council that actually has done a fair amount of work on, uh, since the uh, Camp David Accords on uh, checking on the implementation. And we have just come back from uh, a fairly long stay in, uh, in the Gulf to uh, talk to Gulf leaders about the, the implementation. Um, I think it's, it's, it's fair to say that uh, in the Gulf uh, over the last several years, the United States has uh, lost uh, quite a bit of its uh, uh, influence and clout. Uh, if you talk to uh, Gulf states, you get the impression that Reliability is, uh, is, is called into question. It may or may not be fair, but it is what it is. Um, uh, and the, um, the uh, implementation of agreements among heads of state is always the, the tricky part of any agreement. Uh, most people walk away from a meeting uh, telling themselves what a great meeting they had. They shake hands, they smile, they take pictures, and they pose, and then you know, uh, who, who's, who's in charge of the implementation. And that's always, that's un unfortunately, not just in this case, but it's, it's, a, it's a constant problem. 
Um, and and un unfortunately, in this case, it's not no exception. Um, from the from the U.S. from the uh, Gulf perspective, the the U.S. implementation of those agreements has been has been slow, um, particularly anything that has to do with shipping of, of weapons and technology and the like. And 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 uh, you know, a few days ago, uh, uh, I testified in front of the Senate Armed Services Committee. Uh, about some of the needed reforms in the Defense Department, and, and everybody knows that anybody that's ever worked in the Defense Department knows that that um, you know in some areas the Defense Department has three speeds: slow, slower, and full stop. <laughs> and uh, and particularly where acquisition is concerned. And I know Secretary Carter knows that, and I know there are a lot of people working on it. But that's part of the problem. There are a lot of people working on it, and uh, it doesn't seem to get any better. But nonetheless, it, it has morphed into um, a situation where our, our traditional friends and allies in the Gulf uh, have, um, have lost a little uh, confidence in, in, in us as a reliable partner and are talking fairly openly about alternatives uh, to, to using other countries like Russia, for example, and China. Um, there's also another word that, is, that has been used uh, a lot recently since, since Camp David, and that word is um, existential threat. Uh, we've heard that a lot, uh, that uh, our friends in the Gulf believe that they face, they still believe that Iran is an existential threat. And, and because of that, they believe that their longtime partner, the United States, should also believe that and should act accordingly. And therefore, the priorities in terms of our assistance and, and what we bring to the table should be accelerated and not just put on business as usual cycle. Um, we, have, we have seen progress. Uh, we have seen um, weapons deliveries and ammunition uh, deliveries that uh, previously were stuck on, on, on hold that are now um, on, a, on, a, on a better scale. So there is, there is some. There is some progress, but, but overall, I would say, Karen, that, that, uh, the, the, that the United States has, has lost a lot of uh, the traditional confidence um, in, in, our, um, in, in the region, and we need to figure out a way to, to rebuild that confidence, and I think it can be done, but it's gonna take, it's gonna take focus, and as I, as I said, the fact that they believe that there's an existential threat, quite apart from the Iran nuclear accord uh, means that they have a concern about their, their existence. And one of the things that we talked about was what more could we do in the Gulf to bring about a military coalition uh, among like-minded nations. Most of the agreements in the GCC are political in nature, but uh, there is no NATO-like organization in the Gulf. And frankly, I think, uh, if like-minded nations did come together, a coalition could be formed and they could achieve some measure of interoperability, uh, combined training, common standards, uh, you know, on the air and on land and at sea with the U.S. Uh, participating and helping achieve that interoperability. I think you could, I think you could create something that would be, um, you know, quite effective in a short period of time and would, um, would see much more capacity, whether it's in Yemen or the fight against ISIS, more, much more capacity um, that would become very effective quickly. 
Let me, Barry, let me ask you, you've been in the, the bowels of decision-making before. Um, as we said before, there were lots of deliverables that were in this joint communique, very specific things uh, that, that were supposed to be done. And, and as I talk to people from the region, and, and I'm sure you've gotten the same, the same response, um, you know, what, what I've heard is that, look, the administration just totally dropped the ball on this. There's nobody in charge of it. There's no, there's no czar. There's no cheerleader. There haven't been deputies meetings to talk about how do we winnow down these lists of, of defense items that, that they agreed would be fast-tracked. Why is that? Is it, you know, is it that they can't pay attention to more than one thing at a time and they're so fixated on, on what they're doing in Syria and Iraq that they just have kind of left this to the side? What, are they tired of complaints about Iran? Uh, what's the problem? Sure, and um, thanks for um, introducing me as a bowel master <laughs> uh, in the Pentagon. Um, I think it's a really complicated picture. We, ha we have people here in the audience who are, are more current than I in the, in the bowels. Um, I think the, the plate of the most senior decision makers in our national security establishment is arguably as, as fill, full as it has ever been. Um, and I, I am somewhat, I, th I think it's a mixed bag. I, I am somewhat um, optimistic in the, uh, due to very recent progress. And I'm just saying sort of, there, there's the micro pieces and as um, General Jones uh, mentioned, um, and I wanna give credit to Owen Daniels in the Brent Scowcroft Center, we've been tracking um, the Camp David deliverables in, in great detail since, uh, since May of this year. Um, and we can go through those specifics. And it's a mixed bag. In some areas, like um, counterterror financing, things are going very well. The Treasury Department moved out very smartly. Um, in other areas, uh, like uh, the, GCC, the GCC should hold a religious conference on countering violent extremism, you know, there's nothing happening that, that we can see. Um, and, and also in areas regarding foreign fighters, which is a very high priority, we're not seeing progress in areas such as biometrics, um, uh, and traveler screening, which you would think would be a pretty high priority. So we're in continual discussions with officials from all the parties, um, and we will um, uh, continue to update our assessment as it, as it goes forward. I mean, I think there's, there's the specifics, but there's a broader point too, and, and this is where I'm somewhat optimistic. I mean, since Camp David, but particularly in the last month or so, I'm sensing a much higher velocity of engagement a much uh, higher uh, degree of interactions from the president and the heads of state all the way down through the bowels, as you, as, you, uh, as you put it. And I think that is really important. In this region, personal working relationships are extremely important. Um, before Camp David, we heard a lot about the lack of uh, sort of investment in these relationships. And I think now we're seeing a, a velocity that could, if it continues, and this is subjective, but could raise the relationship to a new level. And here I'm not talking about the US GCC, I'm talking about the US with key GCC nations, in particular Saudi Arabia and UAE. I'm sensing a much, a much greater degree of interaction there and I think that's very helpful. I think some of the weapon sales we've seen announced in the last uh, couple of weeks are a result of that interaction. And I think the last thing I would point out is that all parties here are involved in combat operations. There's the Yemen operation, which is right on Saudi borders and, and very close to home for them. Agree or disagree, going well or going not well, it is a very sort of 
um, urgent operation for them. And of course, the US is leading a coalition against ISIS. We've had less uh, Gulf involvement since the Yemen operation has intensified. But I think we should add some urgency. And, and I was even talking to a senior um, defense official yesterday. I think we should think about new uh, provisions for adding urgency for some of these issues where the countries are at war. And so if, if you can come up with sort of urgent provisions for weapon sales or other forms of the deliverables from Camp David that for, for times when the parties are in an active combat operation, I think that might be something that perhaps our Congress could buy, perhaps could stimulate additional activity in the Gulf, and that the US government would move forward more quickly on. I'm, I'm going to rephrase my opening from before. I'm going to say, as someone who is closely familiar with the workings of the top levels of the national security establishment in government. So just, just for the record. Um, Dr. Abad, do you, do you, you're in close contact with leaders in the Gulf. Um, do, how do you see it? Do you see that, that the things have gotten better lately, that the administration is paying a lot of attention, uh, that it's cognizant of the, the ongoing existence of this existential threat that, uh, that is still seen from the Gulf? I mean, um, thank you first for having me, Barry, and thank you for organizing this event. Um, it's more complex for, if you see it from the other side, as you can imagine. Um, uh, there is a narrative that, unfortunately, in this town, it's not fully understood. One of them, as I'll allude to, is your, in one of your introductory comments you made about um, uh, the decrease of participation in the ISIS, uh, in the US-led ISIS coalition. The decrease is such because there's initially an original misunderstanding, and um, if you want, uh, now we can say it more openly, uh, disagreement about the intent of this coalition. So it's not about weapon, it's not about planes. Saudi Arabia has a lot of planes. They have maybe, they've given 100 to the Yemen conflict. Um, they have 20 or 30 to give to the coalition if need be. It's about the whole premise of attacking one part of the cancer whilst leaving the other one safe. And unfortunately in this town they assume that because there is a ramp up in, pre in, uh, in presence in Yemen that has taken away from the resources for Syria, which is incorrect. Um, secondly, the issue with the Camp David um, uh, framework is that a lot of it was already there. So if you want, it was repackaged into a multilateral um, issues-driven uh, framework. But if you take from the Saudi example, say on counterterrorism, that's been up for 10 years already. And it's done wonders, especially in the first um, Al-Qaeda um, uh, campaign in Saudi Arabia where U.S. and Saudi worked diligently together and were able to, uh, to destroy that uh, infrastructure in the kingdom back in the 1990s, so, uh, excuse me, uh, in the 2000s. The problem here is that we have to focus on what's really happening and if new frameworks come into perspective like we're seeing now with this uh, Camp David, how that meshes into what's already there. Um, the weapon system deliveries, they've been there. Uh, they have been speeded up, that is correct. But at the same time, I've, I'm not sure if that really fits into the new framework of this new Camp David understanding. Because on the ground, the counterterrorism, the exchange of information on terrorists, on Al-Qaeda, on ISIS is ongoing and going forcefully. Um, new heightened um, awareness because of the new Saudi defense doctrine 
is there that there are new weapons uh, systems being asked and immediately approved. So that's a positive sign because of the increase in interaction. But what, where the confusion is, would be, is how will the new framework, if it is to be implemented fully, because uh, it's a considerable, um, they're talking about considerable elements and considerable different issues, uh, how will that impact the existing relationship and will it make it more efficient? And then ultimately, it's this general discourse, because that's also very important, especially <coughs> when dealing with national security and defense issues. Um, the example is Yemen. Now, as Barry said, there's, there's two coins to this story. Is it going well or is it going bad? But more importantly is the premise of it. So the initial planners uh, in Riyadh had thought that the conflict would take between two to four years. Only when the discourse started reaching here that suddenly the conflict isn't done yet. But initially the planners never thought of it that it would be something that would be done in a month or two. So we're just about going to finish the first year, and we're really into it. So I don't think that the discourse by some people giving an opinion actually really helps the actual presence and the reality on the ground, as was initially planned for. Can you, uh, General Jones, um, Dr. Abed just mentioned the, the fundamental disagreement between the Gulf states and, and the United States about what the, what the threat is. And obviously, what's happening in, in Syria and, and Iraq is tied intimately to their own concerns about, about Iran. Um, and um, whether the US concentration on the Islamic State at, at the expense in the Gulf view of, of um, putting resources to getting rid of, of, uh, of Assad and getting rid of the Iranians in, in Syria, um, I think is, is the basis of that. Did you hear that when you were there? Did you hear the, um, you know, them saying that there was a fundamental disagreement with the United States about what the threat is, about how all this is tied together and has to be looked at as a whole? Yeah, uh, uh, I think the, the, the fundamental um, Gulf between us, no pun intended, is is that um, they see uh, they still see Iran as as an existential threat. One leader said said to me, um, "We will be fighting Iran for the next 25 years uh, without any equivocation." Um, and so, so there's a fundamental problem there when you know we we're signing an agreement with Iran on their nuclear program. But, but in, the, in, the, in the Gulf uh, residents' mind, it doesn't alter their behavior. It doesn't alter their behavior with regard to Hamas, Hezbollah. It doesn't alter their behavior with regard to uh, supporting the, uh, the war in Yemen uh, and contributing to the instability in, in Lebanon and, and other places. So their view is that the behavior hasn't changed even though you have this, this agreement that they think might be, to be charitable, might be useful in the short term, but certainly not in the long term. Uh, that's their view. So, um, so there, is a, there is a fundamental disconnect about, about the, on the Iranian question. And then on the, on, the, um, on the other side, with regard to how do you tackle ISIS and, and how do you tackle the Assad problem in, in Yemen, do you, 
you do it simultaneously, you do it incrementally. I mean, there's some, there's some differences of opinion there as well. Um, but fundamentally, I think, I think one, of the, one of the biggest problems is that, uh, um, that our traditional relationships have been shaken uh, at, at their core. Um, and it, it probably happened, it, it did happen long before uh, the Camp David meetings. It, it happened, you know, goes back to the Arab Spring, goes back to uh, our efforts in Libya, the red lines in Syria, our own uh, national wealth in energy, which if you're a, a Gulf state, you think, well, our uh, OPEC is not as important anymore, so the oil for security deal that we've had for 40 years is no longer as important to us. I mean, that's the analysis that goes into this, and, and you really have to see things from both sides, even though we may disagree with some of that. Um, but I think there is, there is a divide there that uh, hasn't been... Uh, hasn't been bridged, and I and I think uh, I think the U.S. is going to have to really focus on on the, on the region again and do some fairly innovative things to convince our friends and allies that uh, this is still the most dangerous uh, spot on the planet because I think it is. What, what do you think, Barry? What what are those things? What could the United States be doing that it's not doing now? I mean, we've got we've got a. The president is constantly on the phone to regions, uh, to leaders in the region. We've got trips there. We've got a lot of back and forth. What what are they not doing? Well, I think the uh, the implementation of the agreements at, at Camp David would, and 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 highlighting that as a, as as opposed to lowlighting that would be very important. Um, and if the United States took that measure publicly. It would be, it, it, and, and you actually put the chart up there and say, hey, this is what we're doing, this is what we agreed to, and this is the plan. And, and then somebody needs to drive that train. Well, I think that, that goes back to the question I asked before. The, you know, there was a lot of hoopla surrounding this meeting. The president went up to Camp mm -hmm. David. Uh, you had a lot, of, a lot of leaders there. You had press conferences. And as far as I recall, it's kind of never been mentioned again by the administration as an entity, mm -hmm. as a vehicle for demonstrating um, this cooperation. Yeah, I, I think two things would be useful. Um, uh, this administration has really emphasized in its messaging the withdrawal and getting out of wars. And I think there was a time uh, uh, and a place and, and that, that, that was uh, you know, important as opposed to the message they inherited and the activity that they inherited. But I think that has been t overdone. And with the, um, the milestones that General Jones mentioned, including Syria, I think that has contributed to the perception, rightly or wrongly, in, in uh, all three regions where there is turmoil, that uh, the US commitment is not what it used to be. The US security commitment is not what it used to be. So I think so a healthy dose, dose of additional messaging that we are there, uh, we will be there, that the number of forces in the Gulf region is about the same as it, it, as it was before the wars began in 2001. Um, I, I think sort of a, a healthy public diplomacy reassurance and deterrence. I mean, we were able to deter the Soviet Union in the Cold War even as we were making agreements with them. I don't see why it's inappropriate to uh, not link all those issues when we're dealing with Iran. Uh, so I think public messaging, number one. And then number two, a pretty easy one. 
I mean, one of the commitments from uh, Camp David was to hold another summit in 2016. And there's nothing that drives bureaucracies like a summit and dates and deadlines and deliverables. So uh, the parties should agree what's, when's the next summit, and that will drive uh, some additional uh, velocity in the, in the, the uh, assignments that were made. I'd just add a third thing to that. I think the idea of the United States taking the lead and building a, co a, a coalition uh, to improve the, the, the military capabilities and the interoperability among uh, GCC countries uh, would, be very, uh, would be very powerful because right now that we, we tend to deal with them uh, unilaterally, uh, you know, country by country. But there is no, there is no cohesion there. And, and you can, you can see uh, the, the war in Yemen is, is, you know, uh, is, is, is really a problem of achieving inter international interoperability. They, they just don't have it. But I, I thought that's what this was supposed to address. It was supposed to, uh, with a missile defense system, with, the, with the, an infrastructure that, that would create interoperability, mm -hmm. but it just doesn't seem to have happened. I, just to go looking at the suggestions that Barry just made, would that, would that be progress? Would that but move it ahead a bit? The, the concern is that how do you how do you translate what's already there into into something more multilateral as General Jones was suggesting, and more importantly, we're still talking about the GCC as a unitary entity. Now, um, the concerns that General Jones and, and Barry have been alluding to are there, but they are there mainly from certain Gulf countries. Saudi Arabia doesn't share these specific concerns, like the whole issue about security. We're, we're in a process of moving beyond the having to rely on America for security. And this is done through this new doctrine that's being developed through these enormous amount of weapons that the Saudis are buying. I mean, we're, on order, we're over $100 billion in, in order. So when you come down to a domestic constituency back home in the kingdom, who is today becoming very vocal, and where the government has to reply to it and has to conduct in a certain way. It's not like it used to be 20, 30 years ago. Um, it, it'll be hard for the Saudi leadership to say, well, we're still going to go with this oil for security, or we need American, American security when we're spending $100 billion on these very advanced weapon system and training and sending all these uh, officers to be trained in the US and France and so forth. So it's more important than just the framework is getting to understand what the counterparty requires, where he's at, and ultimately being able to de decipher the differences between the, the various Gulf countries. Because it's true, the United Arab Emirates, Qatar, they're all, Bahrain even, they're all striving. They're fighting. They're fighting a war today in, uh, in Yemen. But Oman isn't. Oman is not only fighting a war in Yemen, they're not even, fighting a, they're not even initially part of the coalition in Syria. So, and they're part of the GCC. So the issue is, how do you decipher who are part of it? Like General Jones said, let's create a NATO for the Gulf. And then how capable and how viable is it at the current well, point? Well, I'd like to get you to talk about that a bit. You know, it's, it's an issue in, certainly in the Republican primary campaign where uh, various candidates have said, our partners in, in the region are not doing enough. Um, they have, you know, huge, uh, infrastructures in these in these Sunni countries. Why are they not 
why should we go in on the ground there? Why are they not doing this? You, you have proposed in a lot of things you've written, you've written a lot about this Saudi, uh, new Saudi doctrine um, to the extent that uh, of suggesting that, that part of it would be developing a, a defensive nuclear capability, uh, that, that the Saudi Arabia would take the lead in essentially um, establishing a, a Sunni army that, that would, I think at one point you said, once Yemen is secure, would go, would in fact go into Syria. And certainly the UAE has said, I think last week, said that they were willing to contribute troops as part of, a, mm -hmm. of an international plan. Um, I guess I have a couple questions about that. You've just said that it could be up to four years until Yemen is secure. Mm -hmm. um, obviously Syria can't can't wait that long, but but what are the real possibilities of of establishing um, ground forces that in fact would be willing to, to have the kind of, kind of cooperation among the Gulf countries that you just said kind of doesn't exist, um, and and be utilized for some of these regional regional battles. Well, one of the positive aspects of the Yemen war so far is that it's the first time where you see Gulf armies fighting together up in the air, at sea, and on the ground. And uh, it, there's been issues, but there's also been some remarkable achievements in the last eight months. So that's one, but that's not because of a framework, that's because of an actual war that's being fought by the various army, within their various capabilities. Um, coming, coming to uh, the Syria context, is when you hear these, uh, the, uh, these uh, issues in the Republican primary, Every of the Gulf countries that have decided to take away their planes from the coalition in Syria has, have done it for a specific reason. They, the Emiratis, for example, had that specifically for some certain amount of guarantees that let's say one of their planes got shot down, that the U.S. would be willing to contribute special forces to go take their pilot but out. That, but those guarantees were given. No, they weren't given. That's why, th that's they why they pulled out. Well, that's why the Emiratis pulled out, according to them. they pulled out, but then we According to them. I don't know if it's true or not, but that's what, uh, that's what they were saying. On our perspective, we init Saudi Arabia initially had a problem from the beginning because the problem was how do you resonate and how do you explain it to, the, to a domestic constituency that Saudi F-15s are taking off from Dahran to going and bombing northern Syria, whilst at the same time Bashar al-Assad is dropping barrel bombs on civilian populations. We did it. We were pressured by the administration and the, and the Saudis took part in the coalition. And then what? It was not, it was ill thought out. We told them it was never gonna work and we, we were seeing the results today. So it's fine to, I mean, Saudi Arabia's come down for a lot of blame and we got used to it. But also it's good to see the, sec, the other side of it and see that it's not all white as you see it from, from Washington. I wonder if, if uh, General Jones, Barry, you, you could talk about how the United States would view this formation of a, of a Sunni Arab force. Is that something we'd welcome uh, in Syria, for example? Is that a, is that a good idea? Just jump in. Um, well, I mean, it depends on the context yeah. and the framework in which it's developed. And I, and I differ a little bit with, um, with Dr. Obaid's uh, comment that Saudi Arabia doesn't need the United States and it's going to march off and be an independent military power. I mean, the essence of all, everything we're discussing today is, to me, is the term security cooperation. The U.S. doesn't give assistance to the Gulf uh, just because we're uh, altruistic. 
We do it because we welcome and value the regional uh, partnerships that we have that, uh, for instance, Saudi Arabia and the UAE, among others, contribute to our security by uh, various facets of the multifaceted defense and security and foreign policy relationship that we have. They need us, and we value them, and we need them. So I don't think there's any sense of, uh, you know, the, the Saudis are not going to go off and conduct uh, military operations with zero U.S. support anytime soon. There are dependencies or interdependencies, and um, I think the relationships in various aspects of military capabilities are going to continue to advance. But I think the point is all of this is not uh, sort of tabula rasa. There's, if there is going to be a, a, an Arab army, I think um, that, that would be the subject of extensive consultations and indeed was discussed at Camp David um, and would be in the context of the broader security relationships. These aren't sort of rogue electrons heading in different directions. Karen, it would have to be a coalition of the willing. There are some GCC members that probably would not participate, but that's okay. I mean, I, I, you know, the, the, um, in Yemen, you know, let's be, let's be serious. The, the UAE is the one with the most invested in Yemen. You know, they have, if I recall correctly, 1,500 ground troops. Uh, when, I was, when I was in the, in the UAE uh, several weeks ago, I asked the question how many Saudi troops were on the ground in, in Yemen, and they said 86. Um, so we've got to be careful. I mean, just because the flags are there doesn't mean that there's real military capability. So um, from a military perspective, uh, you would have to say that if you really want to develop a, a, a coalition with interoperable military forces, you have to have a wholesale uh, renewal of, of kind of what it is we're going to do here on ground and, and on the sea and in the air. And, and it starts with training, it starts with schooling, military schooling. And, and I think one of the, frankly, one of the things that the United States has a problem with is, and this is why we, we put caveats on all the forces that we're committing, no boots on the ground, 50 here, 50 there, but we're always cautious. And because we don't want to wind up being the only ones, you know, fighting the war again. And that's fair. I mean, I think that's eminently fair. If you, if you can't talk about existential threats in the region if you're not willing to do something about it before we do. So, so I think there, there's, there's an equilibrium here that has to be reached. But if, if our friends in the Gulf are really serious, I mean, we have... We have the Central Command, we have the Fifth Fleet in, in Bahrain, we've got air, land, and sea operations. I think the United States, I, I mean, I can't speak for them, obviously, but I think the United States would be willing to help them form a military capability that is, that is serious and, and that it can be used and can be used effectively. But unless and until you get that sense that the words existential threat are matched by a commitment like the UAE is doing, for example, with other countries, then you're, you're still waiting for Uncle Sam to come in and save your bacon. And, and I think those days are over. I mean, I, I think if they're willing to fight, I think we're willing to help. If they're not willing to fight, I think you're going to see us do more of the same. Would it be? That's, the understanding. Yeah, that's exactly the understanding that currently prevails in Riyadh. Right. So exactly this. Right. That this is why you have these uptakes in, in, yeah. uh, in weapon system, yeah. you have these, this doctrine that's being put together and all that. That's exactly it. And, and you think this is something that actually is going to happen? Well, it, 
Yeah, it's exi we, for example, in the kingdom, the we we have a long-term problem with Iran. We have a long-term problem. The, the longer Assad stays in Syria, the bigger the problem it is for us. So yes, it is an existential threat. And so the issue where I don't think Barry understood me correctly, it's not about waning one off from from uh, from the U.S. relationship. We're committed $100 billion to it. That's not the issue. The issue is that, as General Jones was saying, is you're going to have to take much more uh, uh, control over your defense policy, over your destiny, and over securing your immediate surroundings. That's exactly what's, uh, where, the pro where, where the policy is going right now. But I, I guess that leads me to a question that, um, you know, if one looks at the U.S. strategy, um, one can say, Yes, it's, it's sort of slow and steady wins the race. And the, one of the criticisms is that, yes, but there are facts on the ground that change all the time, and you're constantly behind them. Um, at what point does, does this start to become a reality and not just people talking about it? Um, I mean, it takes a long time to mobilize uh, an army. Um, there are facts on the ground. Things are happening. I'll give you an example. Um, the reason why there's only 86 uh, the, uh, special forces, uh, Saudi special from the army and the ground, is because there's 100,000 Saudi soldiers that, that have been deployed to the border for the last eight months. So the first time where you, have, you actually have deployed from various, we're talking about interoperability. Now, one of the, the other good thing about the Yemen war is that it shows that there's interoperability within the various Saudi <coughs> forces. So you have the National Guard deployed, you have the Army deployed, and then you have the Border Guard from the Ministry of Interior. So you have three different sets, chains of commands that have been building up a command and control to be able to be deployed. And as the expert, General Jones will say, to be able to sustain a deployment of that kind for eight months in a, a remote, rugged, mountainous area is a massive undertaking. I want to just switch a little bit and, and, I, and hopefully we can spend the next, the next five or 10 minutes talking about this, which is the role of Russia. I mean, Russia has actually obviously reached out to countries in the Gulf. There was uh, the Saudi and Russian foreign ministers just had another phone conversation yesterday. They're, uh, they're on the phone, their visits exchanged. Um, what, what is this likely to lead to? Um, how interested are the countries in the region in forming some kind of cooperative relationship with Russia. Obviously, Russia would like to be considered a leader in the region. At the same time, Russia is allied with Iran. Um, I'm a little confused as to what the Russians think they're doing and what the countries in the region think they can accomplish. And anybody who'd like to address that question. General, you want to start? Well, I think that, that uh, Vladimir Putin is, is not so much a strategist as he is an opportunist. And, um, and he recognizes a vacuum when he sees it. Um, and he moves when he sees it. It's interesting that um, <clears throat> Ukraine is kind of, is not in his vocabulary anymore because he's found something more interesting, perhaps. I don't know. Or perhaps something he, he, perhaps he can only afford to do one thing or the other. Who knows? But, but I, I um, you know, I think that this is, again, there's a little disconnect here because I've heard this chorus in, in the Gulf about, you know, don't push us towards to doing things that we don't want to do. In other words, and the clear threat, the clear implication was don't push us towards Russia because Russia is offering us tremendous um, 
highly responsive uh, military aid and packages and ammunition, almost anything we want. And, um, um, but don't push us there. So, you know, it's, it's kind of like, and then of course the obvious question is, um, well, I mean, if, you're, if, you're, if Iran is, a, is an existential threat and Russia seems to be moving towards Iran, does, how does that compute? How, does, how do you figure that? Well, that, that's complicated. Um, <laughs> but it is a legitimate question. And, and uh, my view is that I would rather see the United States repair the, the fragmented relationship, which I think we can do with focus and application. Uh, rather than to be held hostage to a, some sort of threat that we're going to move into the more relations with Russia or China or anybody else. I think the, the United States is the relationship that Gulf states want. And I think if the Gulf states are willing to do certain things to show that they really are going to put a military capability that's serious and inter, interoperable uh, and trained, then I think the United States will, will try to do everything it can to uh, help them, help them uh, succeed. Barry? I, I mean, I, I have a two-part answer. I mean, one is um, I've, I've been in some of these positions, as has General Jones, obviously. And sometimes the sheer volume of the inbox in places like the NSC can reduce the frequency with which you can engage your counterparts and uh, in a in a world where you know, there's active wars going on, et cetera, et cetera, that can, that can be perceived in the context of all the things we've discussed as a continued diminishment of the relationship when in, when in reality it's, it's uh, other factors. I mean, I think, as I said, I think the US has corrected that quite a bit in the last 30 to 45 days. Um, the second piece is, is weapons, uh, um, weapon sales and, and, and the like, and I think, um, Look, every, all of the Gulf partners want uh, U.S. weapons. They're world class. I mean, they're the best in the world. Uh, and I'm not the expert on this panel on that question, but they're the best in the world. But it's a really, really difficult process. And they're the hardest to get, too. To deal with the U.S., <laughs> yes. It's extremely difficult, time-consuming, very long, very frustrating, multiple approvals, back and forth. Sign here. Steps. You know. And so, um, you know, if you can't get that wonderful jewel on the shelf, but you can get, uh, you know, fake jewelry that still does the job, uh, you're going to start to go in that direction because you're in, you're in active operations and you need this equipment. So I think you're seeing a little bit of um, the, the, the nature of the world, the nature of defense technology now and going forward to 2030 and beyond is th this stuff is going to proliferate wildly. We're talking drones, we're talking weaponized drones, and lots of other advanced capabilities. And there's going to be a lot more choice for countries uh, 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 who, who would prefer to deal with the United States. So we really we need to get our act together and, and, and streamline and make our processes more effective. So that, that's one of, the, I think, an important piece of what we're seeing. So the drones that the UAE is using in, in Yemen are Chinese uh, because uh, they failed to get U U.S. Uh, That's approval. That's too. What, Dr. Bed, what just from the Saudi perspective, what how appealing is Russia's outreach? I tell you one thing. I have one thing that I highly doubt will ever enter any Saudi armed forces, and that's Russian weaponry. So I don't think it's an issue. Uh, uh, Saudi Arabia still knows where the best weapons are. It's it's not just only about best weapons. Let me rephrase that. It's about, there's a history there. 
and why Saudi Arabia is, is by far the largest purchaser of, Amer of American-made weaponry, there's a reason for it, because it comes with a whole training package. There's a culture that's been developed, officer to officer, uh, command college to command college. There is, if you want, there's a community that's been formed there over the last four decades. And it's not because of Putin or because three, four uh, conferences happen where you found the Russian and the Saudi foreign minister sitting by side or a visit to see Putin, that this is going to erase it. What is it? I mean, is the is the objective to sort of tweak the Americans? Is no, it, no, it has just to find out what the Russians have to say? No, it is has it? nothing to do about America here. It just has to do about, for example, with the Russian overture. It's more to do with uh, w with civilian economic financial um, um, uh, openings. It has really nothing to do with America. It shouldn't be seen as well because they're upset with America. They're going to go to Moscow. We don't think like that. But the thing is, is that. Um, there, there are much there are openings in, in other fields. There's technologies. The Russians have been doing a lot of interesting research. There are new companies starting off in Riyadh that want to try to be part of this new research. So it's a complete new way of of, of thinking and of doing things. It's not necessarily because we're going to we're going to poke America in the eyes. No, no. Maybe other countries are doing it, but definitely not Saudi Arabia. Karen, not long ago, the UAE lost 44 soldiers in one day to horrific explosions. That would be the equivalent of the United States losing 30,000 soldiers in one day. And that was a major, major uh, event in, for that country. Um, and and you know, if, if you talk to the leaders of the countries who actually have skin in the game by, and I mean human skin in the game by troops on the ground and that are fighting, they really want, they want whatever they need, they want it tomorrow. They don't want it six months from now or a year from now. They need it now. And that's the story of the drones. I mean, that's an example of things that we could have done that we didn't do. And now, you know, people who are more agile and being able to say, send drones to, to the UAE are doing it. And, and that's the problem that we have. Satellites. Um, you know, this is, this is a true story. In the Bush administration, President Bush, 43, met with President Bouteflika of Algeria and said, can we do something for you, anything we can do? And the President of Algeria said, I need night vision goggles for my Air Force. About 100 pair will do fine. The President gave an order. He said, let's, let's do that. that. We can do that, right? Yes, Mr. President, we can do that. They're still waiting for him. <laughs> so they went, I mean, they got him, but they got him from the French or the Israelis or somebody like that. But we have a serious problem in, our, in, in, in the way, in the speed with which we come to the aid of our friends and allies with equipment. We, we just have a serious problem. It hasn't been fixed. Is, that, is, is, is part of that Congress's problem? Is it, is it the problem of the, the Pentagon? What, who's, where's the problem? Is it that the structure's been set up that nobody's really looked at to see if it's effective or not? We, we have the impression that um, because we have the best equipment that you know, people will put up with our, you know, our um, obstacles. Um, uh, In-use monitoring agreements you know, for flashlight batteries is, is you know, <laughs> an exaggeration, but the in-use monitoring agreement system that we have is really um, something that most of our allies really dislike. I mean, it, it's like, okay, we're going to sell you this, but we have to monitor how you're going to use it because we don't trust you. And there, there are people who say, listen, you're not the only one that makes this stuff. You know, we can go, we can get it somewhere else. And, and all of those other somewhere else's are out there, you know, knocking on the doors of people who need this stuff. And you can't blame 
the UAE or anybody else for saying, look, I really critically need this in the case of the drones, so I'm going to, China's going to give them to us, so I'm going to take them. And by the way, they've made a difference. I'd like to go to questions now. Um, I think we have microphones. I'll call on you. And if you would identify yourself and ask your question, Harlan. Harlan Ullman. I'm Harlan Ullman. My you question always is. You get the first question, don't you? Not always, he Jim. He puts his hand up secretly so that you. Yeah, <laughs> secret sign with Karen. Uh, my question is really for you, Jim. You remember in early 2008, the council released a report on Afghanistan that you signed out about that began, make no mistake, NATO was losing in Afghanistan. It seems to me if we were writing a report today on the Islamic State, we'd probably say that the Islamic State is winning. And there are a lot of reasons for that. As you pointed out, uh, the United States can't regard the Islamic State as a bigger threat than our allies in the region. I think that's been well illustrated. Second, um, the strategic center of gravity of the Islamic State I believe, is in Iraq, and it's a Sunni-Shia problem, which is not being reconciled. And until that's done, there's always going to be a breeding ground. And last, this administration, barring some crisis, is unlikely to do anything more different. And the next administration, charitably, will take at least six months to get their act in order. So under those circumstances, do you think that there's anything that can be done to change the calculus um, you argued earlier for a kind of NATO-like GCC, maybe even an Iran GCC council. Are there some imaginative things that stand a chance of uh, penetrating either this administration or the new one? Because it seems to me we can't continue on the current course and expect to be successful uh, for a very long time. Well, I think um, you know, the, the first thing that I would do is do what you've already agreed to do. In other words, what, what Camp David produced. And I think I think you could speed that up very quickly. Uh, it just takes organization and focus. Um, and then as to um, any kind of uh, military coalition, I think it'd be, it'd be absolutely worthwhile to get together with the leaders of the, the Gulf countries and, and see what they think. And, but have a plan, put the plan together and say, look, we've done this once before in 1949, and it worked. Um, so what do you think? And, and, but it's going to take commitment. It's going to take commitment of your, your young people. You're going to have to reorganize yourself. And uh, it's going to take resources, and they have that. But what, what they haven't done in the past is really committed their, their, their people to kind of ground operations. You know, and, and you've got to do that. And so I think it would be worth, uh, I think it would be worth a shot, Harlan. Barbara. I grabbed it, so thanks. <clears throat> Barbara Slavin from the Atlantic Council. I want to follow on that um, and actually ask uh, Nawaf Abed. Uh, Ashton Carter has said this several times now that the Gulf countries, Saudi Arabia, others, are very happy to purchase expensive weaponry from the United States, but uh, you know they don't have skin in the game, particularly the Saudis are not willing to provide the ground troops. Is it because Saudis don't want to become soldiers? Do you have to change the, the incentive package? to get people to agree to participate? Is there something else that, that's required? Uh, I mean, Carter actually, Ashton Carter actually praised the Iranians. He said, look, they're actually fighting. They're fighting in Syria. They're fighting in, in Iraq. They're losing people. So what do you have to do to instill a different kind of culture uh, in, in your young people that would make them want to defend the region, defend their country? Thanks. Um, no, it's not so much about culture. It's about, um, it's about, um, Skin of the game where? In Syria? 
Well, the Turks just went into uh, Iraq, and the Iraqi prime minister said, in Oscar to the UN, although he has Iranian troops fighting on the ground. So it's also about opportunities. Where would the Saudis go in from? Now there is. Now they are discussing to do some kind of safe haven on the northern border with Syria with the Turks. So we have Prime Minister Erdogan that's coming to Riyadh in two weeks to look at this. And this is where the Emiratis have said that they'll be willing to commit troops to that. The thing is, is that you can have skin in the game, but you have to have an opportunity to do it. When the discussion was about going into Syria and where Saudi was going to commit a sizable amount of air power, uh, President Obama backed out at the last moment. So skin of the game, I'm not sure it was, I'm not sure what he exactly meant by it. Where else would you have skin in the game, in what part, and where would you go in? And who would you fight, and how would you do it? What coalition? At the, at the Jeddah conference, w that was agreed to do this coalition over, uh, over against ISIS, um, that was an American plan. Um, the Americans never came up with a plan to have ground troops on the ground. They actually said specifically no ground troops, just air campaign. And this is where the big argument developed within the uh, gathering about how feasible would that be without having any troops on the ground at the time. So it's kind of unfair also to, to be blaming one or the other without necessarily looking at the overall picture. But I'm not, but I've, I'm completely confident that if needs be, the, you will have, I mean, you have, you have over 150,000 troops deployed, have been deployed for the last year in the South, fighting and dying. We've had, I think, over 200 casualties so far. So I don't think the problem is there right now. It's how do you get it. Yes, sir. Uh, my name is uh, Matar Ibrahim Matar, former MP from Bahrain. Uh, my question is to General Jones. Um, uh, you are asking for repairing the relation with the GCC country. Um, if we look at the current relation, um, there is a lot of criticism for U.S. foreign policy because of uh, lack of credibility when it comes to uh, the assessment of the situation of human rights and democratization. For example, if you look at country report for human rights, Bahrain is considered as constitu constitutional monarchy in this report, while, you, uh, while Russia is considered as centralized government. Uh, if you are calling for preparing this relation, uh, are you calling for uh, addressing, uh, to address uh, less, uh, less addressing for the situation of human rights in the region? And when it comes to the arms sale in the region, uh, Bahrain has about 60% uh, a debt uh, uh, compared with their GDP. They want more arms sale with U.S. They cannot pay allowance for their teachers, but they want more arms sale with U.S. Uh, how this really has an how this will have an impact on the uh, the way that the people in the Gulf will look at U.S. when they are just uh, feeding the governments with more arms sales while the region is uh, with a, a major conflict? Well, I, you know, I, I think that um, as a matter of policy, we should, you know, we, we should refrain from t telling too many other countries how they should govern themselves. But I, I do think we have a history of, you know, advocating the, you know, the, that governments should treat their populations fairly, and, and there are many ways to do that. So uh, I, I think we've, 
we've matured a little bit in that, in that, and uh, speaking from the from the pulpit of, of democracy. Um, although we'd like to see people move in, in, in that direction, but when you when you start talking about defending yourself against an existential threat. Um, even though you'd like to do a lot of other things, this is serious business. I mean, it's either an existential threat or it's not. If it is, then my view is that you have to do something about it. And, and the best way to do something about it, if you're in a region and you have common, pretty much common cultures, common religions, common governments, and so on and so forth, that last piece is, is the, the last domino that needs to be stitched together. Um, and and I, I think I think uh, a U.S. government would be would be would be inclined to be helpful, really helpful in in, in helping achieve that. Um, uh, but I, I don't I, I I just don't think that that the U.S. is going to you know put armies on the ground to do it for people in the region because. They have to show that they want to, that they're willing to participate in that effort themselves and organize them themselves and their cultures to where you create that feeling in, in, the, in their respective countries that this is important. It's existential threats. And, and you have to do certain things to meet that threat. Yes, in the back. Ryan Toole, the Washington Institute. Um, oil prices yesterday dropped below $40 a barrel. To what degree is that economic uh, pressure causing uh, a strain in this relationship between GCZ and the U.S.? Oil well, prices, they dropped under a $40 today, they're at 36 Yeah, yeah. Um, well, that's kind of a follow-up from Friday's meeting in uh, Vienna where the, the policy as everyone expected, was to keep uh, production where it is and to, uh, and to maintain exports. Um, that's, the, the U.S. doesn't have, how is, there is no tension with the U.S. on that. That's part of also seen as another existential issue that we see that in order for us to be able to be, to recoup uh, where we are in five years from now, we have to keep uh, exports at that level currently because if you start cutting it to, uh, to safeguard prices, New actors, uh, new comp new non-competitive actors will will uh, will step in. So I don't really see this uh, as a um, as a um, as an issue. But what's more important is that what's uh, there is a planning happening right now where there's going to be a where expenditures are going to be set very uh, very specifically by the end of this year or I think early next year, where they were going to start to be able to balance out um, what oil revenues would be predicted as vis-a-vis -vis increasing extra debt, uh, increasing uh, uh, debt load to be able to compensate, as well as bringing down certain amount of reserves. So th they're coming up with a formula for that to be able to see this through. Now, the interesting thing is that this is going to, going to go over five years. So again, it's part, uh, you know, it's this rhetoric that, well, sick, we're not even a year into this new policy, this Saudi oil policy, and the crisis is already in Saudi Arabia. Well, no, so I have over $800 billion in foreign reserves net assets. The crisis is not there. The, the crisis would be if you don't properly manage the next five years. And so this is what's being put into thing is how do you manage it? 
with the domestic uh, um, um, responsibility was at the same time keeping up the expenditures to be able to uh, uh, to be able to purchase the required weapon system in order to be able to keep with this uh, new doctrine. Hi, yes, uh, Fadal Adler is um, a visiting fellow at the Legatum Institute. Uh, the discussion seems to have proceeded along the assumption that the intervention in Yemen um, makes sense from a U.S. security perspective. Um, if we're talking very positively about uh, the Gulf putting skin in the game, uh, being able to act more autonomously militarily um, and in concert with one another, do any of the panelists see any risks to this from a U.S. security perspective? I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't. Whether the whether the the Yemen um, basically whether Yemen was a bad idea from U.S. security perspective, and if the Gulf countries are able to act better together, is this a, is oh. this a risk for U.S. interest? No, I, I think uh, I mean um, I was in the White House uh, when Yemen first started coming up on the radar, and and I think it's a it's a reality that that uh, that, that happened. I mean, it, 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 you can't you, you can't just you, you you can't just ignore that the the, the flow of of, of Al Qaeda uh, from the Afghanistan Pakistan region further south and then across uh, into North Africa uh, is a reality. So I think Yemen ha Yemen figures in in this. Um, and the fact that it's um, on the border of uh, Saudi Arabia and 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 has a uh, you know, potential potentially destabilizing um, region, um, and and more importantly, our our friends and allies think it's very important as well. So therefore, you know, if you're if you're in if you're in for a nickel, you're in for a pound, and you've got to you've got to support the effort. Um, on the on, on the GCC on the coalition idea, I, I say GCC. I recognize that not all GCC countries will would buy into this, but I've, I've done enough soundings uh, in the region to know that there are several countries that would, if somebody would put it on the table. Um, and to me, that's leadership, and that's something I think that if I were still um, you know in office, I would be. I would be working on to just see how far you can take that idea, because I think it's useful. Barry, did you want to say something about that? I mean, I, I get the feeling, I was surprised, Dr. Bade, to hear you say that the, that the Yemen campaign was originally designed to, ask, uh, to last for a number of years. Mm -hmm. um, that's not what I've gotten from officials in the area, including from the from the Emirates, that um, there there's a lot of concern about what's happening with AQAP, um, that uh, um, that they recognize that having that many troops on the ground, having that much uh, of their resources involved in this, is is not something beneficial at the moment. And also, the lack of progress on the political front. The whole idea was that this was supposed to push toward a political settlement that just doesn't seem to be happening. I don't know if either of you want to say something about that. No, why it was supposed? Because um, if you remember, very briefly, um, uh, the Houthis took over um, the capital, not this summer, the summer before. Right. And, they and they continuously proceeded to basically encircle Aden and we're just about to capture it. Now, why 
if maybe the the miscommunication at the time about the length of the war is because on the ground there was a realization that there was no more real fighting capability from the Hadi uh, side. So what you not only did you have to do was to was to be able to come to the defense of what was left in Aden to stop it from falling, hence the airstrike, but at the same time to start putting together um, brigades that would be able to go in afterwards in order to start securing the base in Aden and start going back up. So this was never going to be done over several months. This was always going to take the time it's taking. And today we're in, uh, they're in Taz, which is, the, which is the third largest city in Yemen, which is just about to fall. But the Houthis are doing some, uh, they're retreating and causing a lot of problems in, in, in their retreat out of this. So this was not an issue about weeks or months. Now on the political front, is the Houthis have, never, have nothing else to lose. An example, you've been hearing about the successive attacks at the Saudi border. Now a lot of the Houthis that are attacking the Saudi border are attacking them, some of them don't even have shoes on. And they're facing straight on going towards, and they see Saudi archery or Bahraini or Qatari archery on the Saudi side of the border. And they're just attacking it, frontal attack. So these are people that are willing to go, as General said, to the end. And so for, th for this kind of mindset, for the leadership to be able to still have this kind of mindset, they're not ready for a political solution yet. They're talking about Geneva now in, in a week's well, time. Well, but isn't, isn't one of the biggest impediments to a political so solution right now is Hadi at least as much as what the Houthis are doing? How is that? Because the, he's not shown up for the talks. He's still sitting in Saudi Arabia. Um, no, but I don't want to get into a, an lengthy, end, a lengthy conversation um, about, about Yemen only as a distraction from, from um, what the United States sees as a bigger threat in Yemen as well as, as farther to the north. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, no one will capture all of this, to, uh, the, the complexity of the Yemen uh, situation in, in any short sound bite. So what I will say will not be satisfactory. But uh, you have a close partner who's got this major instability right on their border. Evidence, believable, credible or not, of Iranian you know, involvement in various forms. We've all seen the press reporting. Uh, I haven't you know, run those down to the, uh, a court of law degree of, um, of proof. But I think it's significant enough that they uh, initiated this operation. Uh, they're involved in it. Uh, some of the Gulf countries have been involved in U.S. operations, and I point particularly to the UAE, in every one of our major operations in the last 11 years. And so um, I think there's uh, a time when uh, allies need to support each other, and I think the U.S. support is being offered in that vein. Uh, this won't end anytime soon, and we've seen this play before. When the Libya operation kicked off, this is going to be days, this is going to be a couple weeks, it lasted a long time. When the Balkans operation kicked off in 1999, I believe, same thing. I mean, these things take longer than those who are looking for quick military, um, I, I'll, I won't use the word solutions because it's overused, but uh, quick military uh, uh, injections to accelerate and reshape a political process. And I think this will continue to go on for a bit. Well, the, the military I talked to in, in the UAE said that if they, had, if they get the equipment, the munitions that they need, they think that this war could be over in a year. Uh, and my answer is then you should be talking about what happens after that right now. Yep. 
Uh, you should talk about economic recovery. You should talk about giving hope for the people in the region that, okay, we're going to win. It's going to take however long, let's say a year, what happens the day after you have your agreement. And if you don't have that plan ready to go, you're, you're just inviting a prolonged, prolonged campaign. I think there was a question way in the back there. May have, did you have a question, sir? May have changed his mind. Yes, sir. I'm Les Janka, former NSC staff, former Pentagon. Um, nothing would succeed in attracting allies to a coalition than a successful strategy and campaign. Right. And when our potential allies hear that, as we hear on the news, 80% of our planes are returning without dropping their ordinance and that the rules of engagement require our planes to wave off if they see more than five people on the ground, uh, I'd like to ask you, General Jones, what recommendations for changes in our rules of engagement would you suggest that would make even the American piece of the campaign more successful as a way of attracting more people to our coalition? In my 40-year career um, in the military, that uh, the, the more um, Washington gets involved in micromanaging <coughs> military operations, the longer the struggle and the, and the, the less the success. So, if you're going to use military forces, you know, state your policy, tell them what the policy is, develop a strategy to achieve that policy, and then stay out of the way. Because, because this tendency, I mean, it's, it's not just in this administration. There is a tendency to micromanage things, and that's how you get into these ridiculous situations um, where you, you can't use the force you have effectively because somebody somewhere uh, put, put put an obstacle in your way that shouldn't be there. I, just, I would just add, that's a real, I think it's a really important point. And I think the activity, the, the increase in um, tempo of our operations since Paris gives you an indication of the types of things we should have been doing, in my opinion, in September 2014. Uh, and I understand you don't want to create new enemies and cause innocence to lose their lives, but at the same time, why bother conducting a military operation if you're going you're gonna to do it in a way that's not going to achieve your minimum daily, your minimum objectives? Um, I, on the particular statistic that you cited, I've heard wildly variable swings in that number, so I, I'm not believing almost any number anymore, uh, but I hear the, the number has been going down, uh, the, the amount of weapons that airplanes are returning to base with has been going down. So they're releasing more. The rules of engagement have been loosened. And I worry particularly and have been worried since September of 2013, this is a US national security interest. I mean, I, I, I get the part about uh, the Gulf countries should care more than us. But we better care a lot, because these attacks are going to continue in the United States until we, working with our allies and partners, get a handle on it. So I don't buy the. You know, this isn't really our problem. It is our problem, and it was a problem we could see coming for years. And so we need to take the gloves off and deal with it in an effective way. Yes, sir. Arif Ansar with Polytech. Uh, my question is, uh, what if the existential threat, whether it's from Iran or extremists, um, becomes more and the allies are not able to handle it, what happens then? If it gets worse, somewhat like what you were saying, Barry. <coughs> did, did you all get that? No. What happens if the existential threat, whether it's from Iran or from 
terrorism actually gets worse. It goes on to what, what you were saying. What, what do we do? Do we have a, a plan? Well, I, mean, I, I, w I would say that you know, when you use military force, we seem to be spending a lot of time telling people what we're not going to do with it as opposed to what we're going to do with it. And, and it's like telegraphing your punch if you're a boxer. You, you can't get into the ring and say, I'm never going to use my right hand, so don't worry about it. Uh, so I, th I think that's, that's a, we, should, we should stop doing that. Uh, you, always want to, you always want to keep your enemy off guard, and you always want to know that, that there's, another, there's another option that you can use. And if you take it off the table too early, then you look silly if you try to use it again. Um, so, uh, you know, the, the existential threat that uh, our friends in the Gulf are talking about where Iran is concerned is they're taking a long view of this. Um, the imminent threat is the, is the Yemen, ISIS, Assad, uh, and the fighting that's going on. Um, and th and that's, the, that's the, short, the shorter term threat you, you, one would like to think. And, and I, you know, I, this is the kind of struggle that it's going to take. Um, it, I, I'm, I'm a skeptic that it can be won only by air power. Uh, and I think it's going to take uh, some sort of coalition of, of willing countries uh, to, and it, and it could be even an organization like NATO, frankly. Um, I, I'm, I'm a little surprised that we haven't heard much from NATO uh, on, on all of this issue. I haven't seen an emergency meeting of the NAC after Paris. Uh, I, I would have thought that somebody would have called for that. You have 28 sovereign countries with capable militaries. And, and this there is something. There was one after the Russian plane was shot down. Sorry? There was one after the Russian plane was shot down that Turkey called for. Right. But it didn't seem to. Yeah, no, it did, didn't seem to get any, any gravitas. But so the Arab world, the Europeans, the Americans, I mean, we're all in this together. And, and it's going to take leadership uh, by our country, I think, to kind of figure out the path to, to get us out of this. Um, but it's going to take concerted action, and I, I just, I just don't think air power is going to, is going to be enough. But um, we'll see. Yes, ma'am, you had a question. I think we have time for maybe two more. Uh, Marcel Wahba, the Arab Gulf States Institute. I wanted to address my question to Nawaf Abed about the meeting that's going on in Saudi Arabia today, and I believe tomorrow with the Syrian opposition, not an enviable task given all the challenges of putting together an opposition that could then meet in Vienna. What is the Saudi goal objective? I mean, do they see a way of bringing in Ahrar al-Sham and Jabhat al-Nusra into this? Uh, are they closely working with us and Turkey and also the Iranians and Russians to make this a palatable group of opposition? Just to clarify, um, Jabhat al-Nusra not, is not part of all this. There's two, Jabhat al-Nusra and ISIS, they're not part of that. Ahrar al-Sham and uh, the army of Islam, Jesh al-Islam, are because they're the two most powerful and the largest of the fighting groups uh, with the Free Syrian Army Brigades, who are also all represented. The idea here is to be able to have a, for the first time, a command and control where the political leaders and the military commanders sit face to face and agree 
on beginning a mechanism by which to keep in touch, by which to coordinate um, and plan. Um, the Russians don't like the idea. The Iranians have said it already openly. They hate the idea. But um, what the idea is to be able to put together the most powerful of this group in order to be able to start working towards a mechanism by which they could agree to what was supposedly, key word here, supposedly, agreed to in Vienna for a roadmap by which Bashar would very carefully and slowly see himself out of power. But, um, but more importantly, putting aside what Vienna did or didn't do, which really at this point is, is irrelevant, it's putting together for the first time an opposition that could actually be work together, hence be more powerful, and at the same time be more powerful militarily and politically. And where the political side isn't doing something and the military side are doing something else. And this is where this is hopefully going to come to some fruition. One more? Yeah. Oh, the operating. Here it comes. Last night, King Salman made a statement. He was saying, I believe, that there has to be a, a political solution in Syria. What does that mean? A political solution is what we just, what I just uh, told Ambassador Webby is to have a mechanism by which the existing government in Syria, whoever they will be represented by, and the group that's meeting in Riyadh come to some sort of a document where they will create a unified government with the understanding that Bashar and the people around him who are yet to be identified in the, uh, in the proceedings would uh, be, would uh, uh, leave power. So this is what this statement meant. It's following, it's introductory to the meetings that are gonna happen today and tomorrow. It's the seriousness of being able to bring two very different groups with two different world governance outlook together to come up with what would ultimately be a viable entity to govern in Syria. This is the idea, and this is the framework. I'm gonna, I'm gonna close by taking the prerogative to ask one more question of my own. Um, we've been talking about, about cooperation, we've been talking about coalitions, working together, all sharing, sharing the same goals, and the difficulty uh, of doing that. As you hear the, the American political campaign, and the question of, of Muslims uh, in this country become a, a political football. Does that affect this at all? I mean, do, do people just say, do people in the region just say, you know, that's, that's Donald Trump or that's the Americans, they'll say anything? Or, or does, it, does it have, or do you think it might have a real effect on the ability to achieve the kind of, of cooperation that you've been talking about? My view would be that people overseas take our elections much more seriously than we do. <laughs> so the answer is, I think, they pay a lot of attention. I think it's extremely corrosive. And I think um, we're in a world now where it's not just nation states that have power, but non-state actors and people have power and, and connectivity. And when you see uh, you know, mass shootings once a week, uh, Muslim or otherwise, and then you see statements from the leading 
uh, one of the leading parties, presidential candidates, that a people of a certain religion should not be allowed into the United States, a country that was founded on immigration. Uh, it's, it's yet another decrement of others' perceptions of us and certainly would, would give anyone pause. Uh, so I think there's been a cacophony of these unfortunate, um, unfortunate things that have happened uh, that has contributed to a perception of an erosion in U.S. Uh, influence and role as a model. And I think we, what, what we seem to misunderstand as a government and as a people is we're operating from a very significant deficit right now. And I could go through the litany of, of events that have led to that deficit of public perception of U.S. leadership. And we really need to start digging out of the hole and not digging deeper. Um, what Donald Trump did yesterday was, um, and now we're talking to the wider, let's say, a wider Arab audience. And let's go even further, wider Muslim audience. In, non-Arab Muslim countries that are still very conservative and that have a specific notion of America uh, based on conspiracy theories, based on what they hear at dinner, I mean, what have you. And you've heard them all. That only accentuates what they believe. And so it makes people like me, for example, that have studied here, that, you know, that work here, you know, that are leading institutions, when I open my mouth, are basically being made fun of. I'm just basically walked down the stage told to shut up. Because what Donald Trump has done is that he has exemplified everything that they endemically believe to be wrong with the US, which as we know is incorrect. But unfortunately, who today has a bigger microphone, a louder global microphone, American today than Donald Trump to be able to tell Donald Trump what he's said is wrong. And it's very, very destructive. So what Barry has said is correct. It's very destructive. And this, we're going to be hearing about this for years to come, what Donald Trump said yesterday. Thank you. Thank you all very much, and thank you all for coming.